the flooding in California is far from over. What does that mean for farmers there? Oh, and there's a change coming to antibiotic use in cattle. You're going to want to know more. Welcome to Around Farm Progress, a podcast that looks at agriculture issues across the country. I'm Willie Vocher, host and editorial director for Farm Progress. This time out, we're starting with a boots-on-the-ground discussion of the flooding out west. Todd Fichet, Western Farm Press, loaded up his equipment and headed into the region to find out what's happening to farmers and their crops. He shares what he's learned and offers more information about the region and the weather's impact. Then we turn to an issue that will impact beef producers across the country as the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's antibiotic guidance on over-the-counter animal drugs is changing. What does that mean for producers and their relationship with veterinarians? But first, let's talk flooding with Todd Fitchett from Western Farm Press. Well, Todd Fitchett, welcome to Around Farm Progress. Hi, Willie. How are you today? Good. You know, um, you you took a trip last week that uh, I think a lot of people will be interested in. Essentially, you were boots on the ground in flood country out west, right? Yes, sir. Um yeah, I traveled to uh, the southern end of the San Joaquin Valley and what a lot of folks or locals call the Tulare Lake Bottom area. It's an ancient lake that over 100 years ago was the largest freshwater body of water west of the uh, Mississippi. And um, it tends not to be anymore because all that water has been diverted for farms and, and city uses. But yeah, today it's getting close to uh, what it used to be. Yeah, the the pictures I've seen, and obviously you've seen a lot more, are pretty disturbing. But what did you find talking to farmers down there? Kind of give me a gist of what, what you're hearing. Um, well, you know, runoff into the area. The, the lake is a um, – it's it's like the Dead Sea and the, um, and the Salton Sea. There's no outlet. So whatever flows into that uh, lake is going to stay there for a long time. And so that's that's a big concern because you can't just evacuate the water and start farming. Um, there's some farms in there that grow cotton and, and canning tomatoes and a few other crops. Um, the lake, parts of the lake are flooded. Parts of it are not yet um, because of the series of levees that are um, in the area that, you know, the farmers use to control where the water goes when, um, you know, when they have that luxury. We're coming off of what? How many years of dr- of historic drought in that area? Oh, it it depends on I guess who you talk to, but it it's right. been at least three or four since um we had kind of an epic year back in I believe it was 2017. Yeah, I think we're in another epic year. I don't want to correct you, but this is <laughs> crazy uh, with the snowpack where it is and the water. So what what can I, where you were in, in that area, the Tulare Lake area, what what are the guys doing? What can they do now? And how are they looking at this season? Because their season um, goes year round. Well, yes and no. Um, there's permanent crops in the lake mm-hmm. bottom and there are, you know, row crops, field crops like, um, you know, cotton and tomatoes mm-hmm. again. And uh, and so one of the farmers I talked to, in fact, our uh, high cotton winner from 2021, okay. um, he was evacuating his uh, farm shed, his his farm shop, um, including his uh, above ground storage tanks, um, because the uh, area immediately around his shop was already underwater. He they had a levee put around the shop just to kind of keep the water out of there until they could evacuate everything. 
That's significant. So that means they're not going to get any work done. Um, he he told me that um, he'll move some of his um, operations to um, another area of the valley that um, tends not to flood. But um, it's also an area of the valley that is uh, challenged by surface water issues. So in those dry years, he may have to, he may move back, but, you know, we'll see. So are they so in that case, he's vacating some ground. Are others doing that as well? And how are the permanent crops looking? I mean, I think of some of the trees I've seen underwater. They're not going to be able to do anything this year, are they? No, they're going to die. Um, oh basically, um, the uh, almonds, which there's not a lot of, as I understand, in that general area, there's more pistachios. Mm-hmm. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what happens to the pistachios, but chances are they'll um, they'll succumb to the floods. Um, this guy has some uh, pomegranates or had past tense. Um, the trees are still there, but they're um, they're not going to make it. This is um, it's hard to quantify this loss. Is have the State Department of Agriculture in California tried yet, or have you gotten a sense of anything like that going on, or is it still? We're no pun intended, knee deep in the problem. We don't know what to do yet. Um, it's just going to take a long time. It's um, it's really going to take probably uh, a couple of years. The uh, the counties in California do do something different than really I think any other state does uh, with their county departments of agriculture. Um, they're required by state law to produce a report every year that people just call the proper part. So in this case, Kings County, California, um, will submit a, a crop report sometime early summer. Um, and so we're in 23. Um, he'll issue that report for 22. Mm-hmm. And that gets sent to the uh, state CDFA. And um, and that has acreages and dollar values and whatnot. It'll be a year later that he will have a report for 23. And uh, and these are and these are raw uh, numbers, um, gross figures. So you know people can extrapolate from from those gross figures and in acreages when looking at, at two different reports. But it's just going to take time. So as you look at this, what else what else have you learned in this trip this past week? I know you're you're doing a lot of writing and trying to sort it out. But what other things are you, what are your some of your other takeaways? Um, the snowpack in the Sierra Nevada is epic. Um, you know, they're, they're using words like epic and record and whatnot. Um, Mammoth Mountain Ski Area, for example, which is east of, uh, you know, east of there, it has had over 800 inches of snowfall this year. And, uh, and that water is going to have to come off the mountains at some point. Um, the projections for the Tulare Lake Bottom will be the likelihood of over a million acre feet of water will, uh, will be will just flow into that region so there's going to be a million acre feet of of water that just floods a large chunk of real estate so here we go from the standpoint of reservoirs that are drying out to a a lake now that's going to take out a lot of farmland are the reservoirs being replenished is that is there some good news in this snowpack oh yeah most definitely um i was just looking at the numbers for Shasta and Oroville, and, and Lake Shasta is a uh, a federal facility in Northern California, and Oroville is a state water project facility in in the same general area, and and both of them are are within 40 feet of what they call full pool, 
um, Oroville is, is about 40 feet down from the, uh, the top. And, uh, but as epic as that watershed is, uh, it will likely fill. Shasta will likely fill. Um, there's a high likelihood they may even spill. Um, there's some other reservoirs that will, uh, that will also spill. The concern is some of them will be uh, uncontrolled because right. they're, they're just afraid the water's going to come off the hill too fast. Um, you know, Millerton Lake on the San Joaquin River, for example, um, is really a small reservoir and it'll probably over, you know, it'll spill, um, as will Pine Flat on the Kings River, um, at which time they just lose all control of how much water they can, you know, they can control for flood purposes. Hmm. So that means you know, you're in the Tulare Lake area, which we're going to lose a lot of real estate, it sounds like. But the San Joaquin is where everybody turns their attention to. There's a lot of crops in the San Joaquin. Are we going to lose a lot of land there this year? It's it's kind of to be seen, um, you know, depending on how fast that water comes off the hills and, and how much over the banks um, those other rivers go. Um, you know, the water agencies are, are doing a good job of, of right now of, of managing or trying to manage those flows. So um, it's just kind of a, a, a wait and see, you know, anybody really close to the river with grapes or, or what have you um, may be concerned. But, you know, we'll, we'll know later on this summer because this there's a lot of snow up there that still has to come off. Right. I was in Utah just a couple of weeks ago uh, for another project. And by now, their barley should be sown in the area that I was in north of Salt Lake. And there's still so much snow on the ground. They don't even know when they're going to, they don't even know what they're going to raise next. That's kind of what's happening on that side of the mountain on the, you know, on the Eastern side where all the snow is. So it's just changing everybody's perspective is what's the mood. You talk to quite a few farmers. What's the mood there in the middle of all this? Well, the, the, the farmer who's having to clean out his, um, his uh, farm shop was um, not in a good place. And, and it's Mm -hmm. totally understandable. I, I, you know, as a, as a human being, I just, I felt bad for him, really did. And um, so, you know, it's, it's like anything else. Well, it's, it's like, you know, when a, when a massive storm system takes out some cropland in the Midwest, people, you know, they pull their boots up and they pick up and they clean up and they continue with life, good, bad, or indifferent. Mm-hmm. That's agriculture. I mean, yeah, this time, yeah, yeah it mean, is. We've been dealing with tough drought in that area for so long. That's been the the main story. You, how is this going to change what you cover this year in your region and in that part of California going forward? Uh, well, it's it's my my a lot of my focus is going to be on on this cleanup on the the water situation. Somebody called it a slow moving train wreck, and it's really it's really what it's going to be um, through who knows maybe August, depending on how fast this water rolls off the hills. So I've got, you know, multiple trips, for example, into the Salinas Valley this year to, mm-hmm. to cover the vegetable scene. That scene has been impacted heavily by flooding on the Salinas River, and uh, which is which is going to have an impact on lettuce availability, at least at, during that transition period. Yeah. When the, the problem with the Salinas area was not so much the snowpack, but all the rain that came through, the trained yeah. rain over week yeah. after week after week, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. The Salinas River, you know, overflowed its banks and and, and levees were were breached and and uh, and so um, you're going to have some land that just probably I don't know if it won't get planted this year, but it's going to be it's going to be really late because yeah. they've got a lot of cleanup to do. 
Yeah, I just wish lettuce would keep so you could stock up on it. But that's a different that's a different story because you're talking yeah, about yeah. fresh crops, right? And these fresh crops <clears throat> for the consumer, they don't keep. I mean, you you're we're just going to no. have high prices. Yeah, and that's that's what I'm hearing. They tried to, um, you know, there was talk of trying to extend the Yuma season, but you know, how how far can you extend the Yuma season when it looks like our forecast for week after Easter will be high 90s? Yeah. So um, you you don't grow lettuce very well. Well, we do it in the spring or in the uh, late summer, but um, it's it's a cold season crop. You mentioned when we were exchanging some emails on this some information you're getting about the Colorado River. I mean, we always look at the Colorado River and the whole Lake Mead and pick your problem along the river. What are you hearing this year? You know, I've I've heard kind of both stories on the on the snowpack and the watershed. But like you said, when you were in in Utah, um, I'm seeing numbers out of Alta, Utah, of mm-hmm. over 800 inches of snow uh, yeah. this season. So. Um, I, I'm inclined to believe that there's more snow, uh, well over 100% in the Colorado River watershed um, compared to last year. The, one of the problems last year was there was a, yeah, there was a relatively decent um, snowpack. It was it was challenged, but the runoff is what surprised people. Um, you know, if if you had a gallon of water in the watershed, you didn't get a gallon of water down the watershed. You got um, you got much less than that. Hmm. And uh, and so that was, yeah, that was interesting. And, and that's what um, caused problems, particularly with Lake Powell. Um, Lake Powell is um, about 27% of full right now. And it's somewhere around 30 feet from the uh, Bureau of Reclamation having to shut the power plant off at uh, Glen Canyon Dam, which means no power out of that hydro facility. Yeah. Do you think this snowpack will make a difference and maybe bring some of that back up, or we we just don't know yet? Yeah, we yeah we yeah we don't know yet because of the uh, you know what will actually run off and and get into the reservoir. It's hopeful. Um, you know, I guess I guess we're all trying to be hopeful and maybe it'll buy us a little more time. But um, it's um, the the river the river system there is is falling tremendously. Mead, for example. Um, has fallen 20 feet a year for what I was seeing each of the last two or three years. Crazy. 20 feet that's... in elevation on on the uh, you know on Hoover Dam. Well, that's a power generator too, and that's going to be an issue yeah. for them. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's well, it's and it's water for everybody downstream of of Hoover Dam where I live. We get our city water out of out of the Colorado River, hmm. and if the river dries up, you know you're going to affect. More than just a city, you're going to affect some military installations too. Yeah, there's a lot of impact that people yeah. are looking at and all that. So uh, you're driving home from this trip. Um, you're thinking about what you've seen. What's the number one or two thing that stands out for you as a journalist? Um, you know, I, we've heard the story about resilience and with farmers, and you know, the, the farmer I talked to. Yeah, he was, you know, he was, he was sad, visibly sad, um, but they have life to go on with. They, they still have bills to pay and families to care for. And, and um, they're just, they're trying to, you know, trying to make the best out of a, out of a situation. Yeah, it's tough. Will there be laborers when all this settles out? Because there's nothing for them to do now. Are they going to go back home or what's going to happen that way? 
Have yeah, you heard the, anything there? Well, the, no, not yet. Because in the at least in the South Valley, um, mm-hmm. the permanent crops are not very labor intensive. The right. um, the grapes, the table grapes are, but there's no table grapes in that area. Okay. Um, and so it's um, it's kind of a, you know, it's it's just going to vary depending on on the spot. Yeah, we keep forgetting how big California is. You know, they're, yeah, they're, that from you know san diego up to the uh, oregon border it's a big darn state it's also the eighth last i looked eighth largest gdp globally not as one state yeah. so this is a significant issue that i think the good news as a journalist is there's going to be a lot to write about over the next few months because the ramifications of this will uh it's uh, like a pond in the it's like a stone in the pond the ripples have just started right well, yeah, and, and and part of that trip that I took to California last week was to uh, attend a meeting, um, annual meeting of the California Rural Appraisers, and they issue mm-hmm. a thick report called their Trends Report, and it it goes back into the last year, and it looks at um, real estate, ag real estate prices, were they up, were they down, what did they do, you know, what were almond prices compared to a year before, and 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 various other crops, and so as some of these areas get challenged for water on a long-term basis. Um, the value, the the relative value of that land is is decreasing, and and then conversely, the the areas with uh, you know with better water quality and, and quantity um, are seeing their their values stable to rising. Yeah, water will be the big determinant on the value of any farmland. Yeah. You're with yeah. a bunch of rural appraisers. What were they talking about? Besides the flood, I guess. Um, you know, just, uh, you know, the issues. So there were some marketing discussions. Um, it was a um, researcher from the University of California there who who gives his usual talk on um, on just value trends and and whatnot. And uh, it's really a it's really a fascinating meeting. It's it's a great opportunity to just hear what you know what agland values are doing um you know what are grapes selling for for instance what are you know almonds and and what are the areas of the state where where those are um you know those are getting higher the the north end of the san joaquin valley for example um has some pretty pretty tall uh agland values um particularly if they're planted in almonds uh, somewhere around 60,000 an acre that doesn't surprise me especially now if this flooding's not going to hit them and they have water available to them I mean that could be well, huge for them. Well, they they've got flooding. There's there's areas of almonds underwater yeah. and and I'm told almonds don't don't like that either. They um you know, they um you know, they'll they'll die as as well um depending on whether the water just sits or it rolls through. If it just rolls through enough oxygen in the water that that maybe the trees won't suffer too much, but if it just sits there for a while, uh, those trees will die as well. And uh but that's going to and, and there's more issues on that topic um, because of the uh, almond prices. And, and that's another issue that I'll, you know, that I'm going to stay up on. Mm-hmm. Well, with 80% of the almond market coming out of California, uh, drowned trees is not good news for anybody. No, it's not. But the almond price has been in the tank for the last several years and uh, because of an oversupply. So right. that oversupply is is going to quickly dwindle. And uh, so at the end of the day, it, it may you know it, it may bode well quicker for 
those in the industry who are able to weather this. Yeah, if they can weather it. And a lot of farmers put money in yeah. the bank for just this kind of thing. So they'll, that's and, and they'll figure it out. That's yeah, what they, they do. Will. That's what they do. I know I heard also heard the olives were in trouble in some parts of the valley, too, with uh, being underwater. But it's the same issue. Once you yeah. once you so flood a tree, there's no oxygen for the root system. The tree will die. Yeah. So it's not good. Yeah. And, and, and so it's dependent. It's highly dependent on whether the tree's dormant or not. The, the pistachios yeah. are just starting to come out of that or will here in the next few weeks. And so, you know, if they can if they can get that water off of those, you know, and and into aquifers or, or somewhere else, mm-hmm. um, pistachios may be able to weather this a little better than than almonds. Well, that's fascinating. Something we don't think about at all, because we can take they can take action in permanent crops pumping if there's a place to send the water. That still yeah. becomes an issue, right? So yeah, but if all the cups are full, where do you put the water? That's that's <laughs> right, and everything's full, so that's not helpful. Yeah. Well, good. Well, Todd Fitchett, thanks for your uh, boots, or shall I say muck boots on the ground in flood country. Um, We'll keep in touch on this. As you uh, discover other things, let us know, and uh, we can bring you back on. Thanks for joining me here at Around Farm Progress. Good to talk to you. Thank you very much, Willie. It's good to talk to you, too. We appreciate Todd Fitchett's insights from his muck boots on the ground in flood country. And as he notes, the impact is just being felt. Thanks to Todd from Western Farm Press for that information. Now we turn our attention to beef and over-the-counter antibiotics for cattle. Betty Haynes talked recently with Julia Herman about biosecurity. Herman is the National Cattlemen's Beef Association cattle specialist and veterinarian. They spoke about the issue in a past episode. This time out, they turn their attention to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's rule changes regarding over-the-counter, medically important antibiotics. Frankly, they won't be over-the-counter anymore. It's an interesting conversation. All right, Betty Haynes here at Cattle Industry Convention with Dr. Julia Herman. Dr. Herman, could you introduce yourself and uh, talk about what you're doing here? Sure. Uh, happy to be here. My name is Julia Herman. I'm the Beef Cattle Specialist Veterinarian with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. I work on the producer education team, and so my major role is education development and uh, veterinary outreach for the team. Awesome. So one of the big topics that you're, um, you've got right now here is antibiotic regulation. What do you want producers to know? Well, so uh, what's coming what's coming down the pipeline this year, it's, at least it's been being enacted, uh, is the Food and Drug Administration's Guidance for Industry number 263. And so what this does is it uh, is going to take a lot of the, well, it's going to take all of the medically important anti- antibiotics that are available over the counter right now, and they're going to transition to prescription only. And so this uh, has actually been in the plan for multiple years. Uh, FDA had a multi-step plan to uh, bring medically important antibiotics under veterinary oversight. Uh, We all, I mean, your listeners may remember uh, the veterinary feed directive a few years ago. This is another step in that process. And so uh, what this does, what this plan does is for FDA is it is towards their goal of reducing antimicrobial resistance, uh, not just in the animal industry, but um, how it may or may not affect uh, human health. And so 
this is one way that when our these medically important antimicrobials go under veterinary oversight, uh, it improves judicious and responsible use of these antibiotics, and uh, it hopefully creates or helps these tools be available for longer because that resistance may not develop. So what about folks that don't have a good relationship with their vet or don't have a, a vet-patient relationship? Oh, that's a great question. So uh, because these are pre- going to be prescription only, that veterinarian client-patient relationship is going to be required. That's required for all medications that re- that need a prescription. Uh, if you don't already have that VCPR, uh, we recommend you, I mean, start doing it now. Um, this guidance doesn't go into effect until June of 2023. And so we have a few months before that happens. We recommend calling, you know, getting in touch with a veterinarian in your community, uh, maybe talking to some uh, neighboring ranchers to find a veterinarian if you, uh, if you don't have one. Uh, but building that relationship now what we call during the daytime and so having you know having to come out and do pregnancy checking maybe you're vaccinating maybe you're doing some sort of herd health planning you can develop that relationship that veterinarian is able to come onto your farm uh, understand your operation understand the needs of what you uh, what your operation requires throughout the year it makes them better prepared to provide services to you we recommend being pro- a little proactive on this. Um, we don't want pe- we don't want producers to be surprised when this happens, uh, but it will require um, some some searching uh, for veterinarians in some areas. So, with a large animal vet shortage, do you feel like that complicates this guidance? Sometimes, uh, I, I mean, I think it'll vary in the region. Um, I do think, uh, yeah. I, there is a large animal vet shortage and rural vet shortage, and uh, a lot of these vets that work in these rural areas, they are being, um, I think we've all noticed that everybody is a lot more busy. And so uh, I know that some of my uh, colleagues in private practice, if they don't already have that established VCPR, uh, they're less likely to go out on emergencies or to see them on weekends. Uh, so I think that is something that producers should should know. Um, I mean, they, the veterinarians don't have, I mean, they have, uh, they're restrained on their time and resources just like we, just like producers are. And so I think that's why uh, that proactive planning is really needed, especially in this situation. So, um, Making sure you're establishing that relationship as a uh, as a client, j- not just for emergencies, is really important to that VCPR. Okay, so the guidance coming down the pipeline on June 23rd. Is there somewhere our readers and listeners could go to learn more about sure. what that entails? Yeah, so uh, you can find the guidance for 263 or FDA guidance for industry 263 on the FDA website. Uh, you can Google it and go straight to that website. Uh, we can also find some producer education resources on ncba.org under the producer education tab. With the guidance going into effect in uh, in June of, of this year, uh, start working on it now. Thanks to Betty Haynes with Prairie Farmer for her conversation with Julia Herman. Looks like you'll want to get a little closer to your veterinarian in the future. And thanks to Todd Fitchett from Western Farm Press for his perspective on flooding out west. 
Those were some interesting conversations, and if you don't want to miss what you were talking about here at Around Farm Progress, simply subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform, Apple, Spotify, Amazon, and more. And if you have a smart speaker, all you have to do is tell it to listen to Around Farm Progress, and you're going to hear the latest episode. Farm Progress is the nation's leading agriculture information source with 17 state and regional brands, as well as Farm Futures, Beef, National Hog Farmer, and Feedstuffs, and our events, including the Farm Progress Show, Husker Harvest Days, the Farm Futures Summit, and the New York Farm Show. Join us next week as we continue our agriculture journey around the country. I'm Willie Vogt, Editorial Director at Farm Progress. Thanks for listening.